0: race now over better waves my ship of mind alive again hoists sail and leaves behind its little keel the gulf that proved so cruel and I'll sing now about that second realm where human spirits purge themselves from stain becoming worthy to ascend to heaven here too dead poetry will rise again for now you sacred muses I am yours so let Calliope a little play her part, and follow as I sing with chords that scourge the wretched magpies, young girls once, till they despaired of pardon for their insolence. Soft hues of sapphire from the Orient, collecting gently, marked the circles now of skies serene from height to horizon, and this sight, once I left the morbid air, which weighed so heavy on my eyes and heart, began afresh to bring my eyes to light. The lovely planet, strengthening to our love, lit up with laughter all the orient sky, veiling her escort, piskies in bright light. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. You're joining me on yet another one of my escape casts, in which I've been trying to provide good, true, beautiful, and wholesome um, escape from the strange times that we find ourselves in. And today, we will be escaping into rather grand realms of hell, heaven, and purgatory. And as our guide, we will have not Virgil or Beatrice, but a friend of mine who I'm welcome, very excited to welcome on the show. And that is Dr. Matthew Rothus moser Welcome on the show, Matthew.
1: Thanks, Joy. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, I'm so excited to do this episode because Dante is one of the great kind of unmined riches of uh christian theology and poetry which i didn't really encounter until my um my master's year but i i know that you've taught on dante and um as i said on my podcast a couple weeks ago i think there's nothing better for a literary escape than stories of people setting out on a quest and what quest is grander than the quest to um the the great circles of heaven so I'm very excited to have you on the show today Uh, but before we dive into that why don't you just tell us a bit about who you are and what you do and why you're excited to talk about Dante
1: I'd be happy to Uh, so I am NOT a Dante scholar I am a Dante enthusiast and Mm. evangelist Um, I have been for the last seven years teaching theology at Loyola University Maryland and it's there that I kind of rediscovered my love of Dante, and I've been teaching him in a class called The Christian Imagination. Where we have uh, about 60, 60 undergraduate students read the entire Divine Comedy over the course of a semester, putting in conversation with, with strange partners, with Friedrich Nietzsche mm-hmm. and with Terrence Malick's film Tree of Life. Then I also teach an upper-level uh, research seminar on the Divine Comedy. But my years at Loyola have just come to a close uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Mm. And my wife, my wife and I are uh, moving out to Los Angeles, California. And I'm going to start as Assistant Professor of Theology in the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, so we are looking forward to, to that transition.
0: I must say that I am sort of jealous of your undergraduates. What a fun class that sounds like. Uh, Malik and Nietzsche. And I find that though, the further I get in academia, the more I wish I could go back and re-experience classes that I did in my undergrad. I feel like when you get to adulthood, you don't realize the richness of getting to just have four years where nothing is really required of you, other than just to like bask in in knowledge and beauty and literature. So I, I'm always kind of annoying. But when I open up my, my tutorials here at St. Andrews, I, I'm always like, guys, you don't realize what a joy it is that you're getting to experience right now. And I think all of the undergraduates are kind of like, Sure, um, you say as you assign us papers and tell us how to do exams. Uh, but all that to say, your class sounds amazing. Will you get to carry that over, do you think something like that into Azusa?
1: I, I don't think so, I don't think so. I will still get to teach Dante there. Uh, I use Dante as my my teaching model for my interview while I was out there. And so they, they made sure to schedule me for the class uh, in which we read Dante. Okay. Uh, as as part of the syllabus. I'm not sure I'll be able to do that Christian imagination thing exactly, but I might be able to to morph it a little bit and
0: yeah. it's
1: it's my favorite it's my favorite class that I've ever put together.
0: Oh, well I hope that your students at at Azusa get to enjoy your Dante enthusiasm as well. And I, I also have to make a note of the fact that Azusa is the rival school of my alma mater, Biola. Um but I wish I'm you luck. sorry about that i know i wish you luck anyway but there are <laughs> lovely people there um diana Glyer is a friend and uh i know there's you will do well and i know there's a lot of good things happening there so yeah
1: i think it's gonna be a wonderful place to be
0: oh absolutely and uh more temperate weather probably than where you are now i would imagine
1: I think so. It was, it was 40 degrees yesterday and 70 degrees today. And so (laughs) we're, we're hoping that we'll get fewer colds out there.
0: Yes. Well, I think, I think most things would be more temperate than that, uh, 40 degree or 30 degree change. So I have been asking everyone who's come on the show, uh, what they have been enjoying doing, Uh, seeking out to keep them sane and hopeful in this strange season that we find ourselves in. So what are those things for you?
1: Well, I have a couple of of things that are going to uh, sound kind of quintessentially academic, (laughs) and then I'll uh, give a more realistic one. Uh, One is, since all of this started in Lent, I was reading um, Malcolm Geitz, the poet, his little book, uh, all through Lent, where he does a poem a day. So I would start each morning with a double shot of espresso mm-hmm. and, and a poem. And I've tried to continue that even as we've gone into Easter and pulling some other poetry books off off the shelf. I also try to journal a little mm-hmm. bit every day. Uh, it's It helps me kind of give shape to what might otherwise be a kind of amorphous, amorphous day. And so that's been really helpful just to have little beats of of contemplation and reflection uh, throughout the day. The other thing that I've been doing that's just much more fun is I've been revisiting the old 1990s Christian rock music <laughs> that I grew up with. Old CCM music, DC Talk, Audio Adrenaline, Petra, Striper, all of this completely five iron frenzy completely ridiculous music that somehow i still have all of the lyrics memorized and so it's just been a kind of walk down memory lane remembering all of the associations that i have with that music and then just laughing at my younger self and it's just been this kind of strange infusion of of happiness and silliness in in these days that can be kind of stressful and anxiety ridden so that's a way that i keep myself laughing
0: i love that i wonder what it is about this season that's made us want to like return to younger years because i've been doing that too i've been listening through playlists i made when i was like 15 and 16 which range between like the christian you know rocket things and then i also had a very intense because it was like right at that moment i had a very intense like sufi and stevens regina specter death cab for cutie those don't really go together but they kind of did in my like 15 16 year old angst mind And uh, so, yeah, there's something about this season that has made me want to revisit those those old things that I enjoyed and loved.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes. And we're both I don't know if I'd say proponents of that era of rock, but it's just fun to revisit it, uh, which we've talked about several times. And um, and of course, I did my Rich Mullins, which is a different a different mode, but still in that kind of era of music. Uh, So I still deeply some of the stuff that came out of that was really good.
1: Yeah, a lot of it holds up, uh, yeah. which I've been I've been really pleased to see. A lot of it doesn't hold up, and that's almost <laughs> more enjoyable though. Oh boy, yeah. there's some stuff that just does not hold up, and, but it's completely delightful.
0: Oh yeah. Oh well, that's very fun. Also, I feel like an espresso with a poem every morning. That just sounds like, that sounds like the good life. My version of that has been I've started, um, I've been starting. I call it my stoop sit. We have little concrete stoop in in front of our flat and overlooks a garden, which is incredibly messy right now because we don't have the tools to take care of it. And our, our landlord is like, well, we don't really want to come in, but it's still beautiful and it's blossoming. And so every morning I sit and I read a little, like just very shortly, I read a little bit, I drink my coffee, and then I just think about my PhD, which sounds very silly, but I just like sit and just think about it. And it's just a very fun, um, centering, grounding, experience, um, to do that every day to have those kinds of things that kind of really get you in rhythm. I feel like all of us do you do? Do you do Myers Briggs? Did you ever do my Myers Briggs? And uh,
1: I Yeah, show? I did. I did I'm well, an INFP, I think.
0: Okay, well, I, I live with an INFP. My brother is an INFP. Um, but go. so less structure oriented. I'm very structure oriented. But I feel like all of us have kind of needed to find some J in our personality in this season or yes. else you just end up kind of <laughs> yes. wafting into the never never land of of no schedule. Um oh that's fun to hear and now I want to go revisit some old tcm music. Uh but <laughs> I guess we should talk about what we came on this podcast to talk about, which is Let's Dante. Do it. So uh I'm just gonna set you loose. Tell us about who Dante is, what the committee is all about, uh set you loose. Say what you're gonna say.
1: Wonderful. So Dante Alighieri, uh, he was born in a, into a kind of a old, moderately noble family in 1265 in Florence, Italy. And if you know anything about Dante, you know that he is Profoundly associated with the city of Florence, and not in a good way, uh, which we we can talk about more in in a couple minutes. Uh, as a as a young man, he made a, a name for himself with a, a publication of a book that we call the La Vita Nuova, the New Life, which is a collection of of love poems and then some some actually early critical. Uh, analysis of those poems that Dante himself does and and these love poems are centered around a woman named named Beatrice that Dante uh, sees uh, when they're both nine years old and and she she becomes a kind of icon of divine grace and beauty in his life uh, for his for for his entire life Uh, in the happy days of of medieval Florence, if you were a celebrated poet, uh, that would prime you for public service. Mm-hmm. And so Dante eventually ends up going into politics uh, in the 1290s, and he ascends pretty high up through through the guilds uh, until he becomes one of the priors of Florence. So, mm-hmm. so one of the the main. Um, the main leaders and advisors of the city of Florence. And that's kind of where Dante's, uh, uh, his career reaches its apex and then its rapid decline. Uh, he is betrayed by, by colleagues and, and um, some rival, some political rivals. And he and others of his party are exiled from Florence in the year 1302. And eventually, Dante is is forbidden to to return to Florence uh, under pain of death mm-hmm. of being burned alive. And so Dante spends most of his life wandering
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in exile, and it's in exile that he writes the vast majority of his of his works. He writes a, uh, a unfinished philosophical treatise called. The Convivio, The Banquet, uh, which he gives up uh, writing. He writes a work of political philosophy called Monarchia, which uh, was actually put on an index of forbidden books. The Divine Comedy wasn't, but his work of political <laughs> philosophy was. And then he writes what we know him for, um, uh, the the comedy. Uh, there's There's also a, a small work of... Um, of linguistics called uh, On Eloquence in the Vulgar Tongue, which is also unfinished, and, but the Divine Comedy is the the staple work. It's it's Dante's comedy, and this is what we we know him for. And it's a it's a a beautiful and almost overwhelming uh, masterpiece of literature, of philosophy, of theology, of of metaphysics of history of politics it really is a a kind of summa Mm. of of everything that dante uh, knew and studied and dedicated himself to and it is i i think as you said at the the beginning there joy it is one of the untapped resources for contemporary theology, I think. Mm. A lot of contemporary theology is revisiting past eras, the early church, the medieval church, and, and Dante's a staple that I think uh theology can kind of return to and draw from. And that's that's part of my uh goals as a as a theologian and as a teacher is to is to make Dante one of those figures that we think with mm. theologically and allow him to do his theology in a different register from Mm -hmm. somebody like Thomas Aquinas or Teresa of Avila or Saint Augustine to do his theology through poetry and and how that how that might complement how we do theology today um so yeah he's he's a magnificent if complex and often frustrating Mm -hmm. character He's provocative. You, you should never read the Divine Comedy and agree with everything in it. Uh, I'm not sure that Dante himself agrees with everything <laughs> that's in the Divine Comedy. Uh, but he provokes us to think better and to think more deeply and more richly and indeed even more poetically
2: yeah.
1: about things that we hold dear, these ultimate human questions, these beliefs that structure our lives. Um, what is desire? What is love? How do we find Christ in a broken world? What is justice? What is mercy? Hmm. What is grace? How should we think about creation? I mean, hugely compact, complex theological questions that he addresses with with the lightest poetic touch. Hmm. And it's it- it's such a wonderful invitation that Dante offers us in the comedy to think, to think with. And, and that's, that's part of the work that I'm wanting to do. So Dante died uh, a year after finishing the divine comedy in 1321. And he is buried in Ravenna, Italy. And that's where he's still there. You can go, you can go visit his grave in Ravenna, Italy, uh, from what I've heard, Florence has petitioned to get Dante's bones back. Uh, that's awfully uppity
0: of them after exiling yeah. him.
1: Well, exactly. That's that's Ravenna's response. It was like, you could have kept him, <laughs> but you sent him away. So there's there's statues for Dante all over uh, Florence, mm. but Dante is finally at home and at peace uh in in Ravenna. And I have a feeling he's gonna be there for quite a while and I'll
0: see
2: him
1: going back to Florence anytime soon.
0: <laughs> yeah. I I think I love I love having the context uh for for Dante and I love the idea of doing theology in a poetic um register as you put. Which of course you may not be surprised to hear me say given that I'm doing a PhD at the Institute <laughs> for Theology, Imagination and the Arts. Um but I think when we think about how we use language to describe things that are most important to us, we live in a world where we kind of want to be as, you know, mathematical and scientific. And we think that's the best way to talk about the most important things. And when we put people, even when you think about him being, you know, put into politics, we we want to put people into politics who can, you know, wheel deals and and do economy and, you know, describe things in these precise manners. Uh, But it's so interesting to think of a world in which, the skill that was thought to be important or that would kind of put you into that world, was poetry. You know, what if we were mm-hmm. electing Malcolm Guide or christian Wyman as our as our <laughs> governors in various ways? But I think that that's a helpful thing for us to question in ourselves is how we think we should speak about the most important things and mm-hmm. um and questioning that idea that to speak in the most precise and mathematical and scientific way may not actually always be the best way to speak about the most important things. And that there's something in poetry, in, um, in this kind of sacramental imagination that opens up understandings that we couldn't have if we tried to diminish it to the the least amount of things we could say in the most scientific register. And yeah, and mm. I think that's what's amazing about Dante. So he kind of gives us an in with that.
1: And what I love about him, and and I love seeing students be surprised by this is i think we're so used to think, thinking of poetry as as you know this kind of happy go lucky lyricism mm-hmm. and and certainly mm-hmm. there's a a wonderful place for that but we often kind of uh, oppose poetry from more rigorous modes of thinking mm-hmm. science and and math and of course dante is a profoundly scientific mm-hmm. thinker yeah. and he he has in- incredible mathematical architecture hmm. to to the poem which maybe <laughs> Tell
0: us about, about that. Later. Yeah, tell us and, about that.
1: Yeah. so so the divine comedy maybe I can just yeah. uh introduce it a little bit. So it's Dante just called it comedy. Hmm. Uh it's only later that that the word divine gets associated with it. Dante is a very arrogant guy, but <laughs> he, he's thankfully not Arrogant enough to call his work the Divine Comedy, he let (laughs) other people do that. Um, But it's the story. It's the story of a pilgrim, who is also Dante, uh, going through a journey through hell, um, which is beneath us. He goes into the center of the, the earth in hell and then he comes out the other side of the planet and climbs a mountain of purgatory and then he ascends into heaven until he slips out of time and space altogether and goes into um uh the very mind of god in a heaven he calls the the empyrean so it is the most epic of epic journeys um but the the comedy itself is is uh it has a beautiful kind of theological architecture, I think. Um, so it's it's 14,233 lines long. Uh, that might be useful trivia for a trivia night whenever we're allowed <laughs> back into such things. And it's divided into three parts uh, called cantica, the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And each one of those canticas is divided into 33 Cantos or songs, we might call them kind of chapters. Uh, but only inferno kind of differs here. Uh, third uh, Inferno has thirty three cantos plus one. And the others have thirty three. And so thirty three is a very potent theological number for for Dante. Thirty-three. It's the year of of Christ's age when Christ undergoes his passion and and resurrection and and ascension, and of course three, yeah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the the overall shape of the Divine Comedy is three and thirty-three. Mm-hmm. So even as you're just reading the poem, you're getting this kind of triune and christological structure. Mm-hmm. To it or shape to it. But of course, Inferno has 34 cantos instead of 33. Why? Well, because hell can't image Christ perfectly. (laughs) Purgatory can, because it's a realm of grace. Paradise certainly can, but hell can't. So you have hell being kind of set off. But then, now I'm not a good math person, but the last time I checked, 34 plus 33 plus 33 equals 100, Hmm. which is a number of completion and perfection. So even in the the numbering of the cantos, you see Dante's theology at work, because that's a theology of evil, that that evil is different from good. Um, But nevertheless, evil can be redeemed. It can be drawn into this larger structure of, of what God is doing, the perfection that God's going to do. So that's kind of the macro level of how the divine comedy is, is structured. Um, but then on the micro level, Dante adopts a, a poetic scheme, and not many English translations can do this, only the mm. Chiardi translation really attempts this. It's called the Terzarima. And that follows a A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C <laughs> rhyme scheme, uh, uh, which, which can't easily be resolved. So the Divine Comedy is, an, in a sense, an unfinished work, too, because mm. the, the rhyme scheme can't resolve. Uh, so Dante has literally never finished work,
0: hmm.
1: which also yeah. might be...
0: <laughs> Relatable might to academics? Be-
1: <laughs> yeah, relatable to academics, relatable to Christians, uh, and yeah. and the journey of our of our faith.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But so if you look at a a copy of the Divine Comedy, you'll typically see the poem divided into kind of sets of three lines called tercets, which tries to capture that terza rima. And so each line in the Italian, each line of of poetry, is exactly eleven syllables. So Dante said, I never had to force a rhyme. No. Okay. Okay. Dante, good for you. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> uh, but that means that every tercet, every three line, every, every collection of three lines is also 33 syllables. Wow. So the entire divine comedy on the macro level and on the micro level is kind of structured on this Trinitarian and Christological kind of rhythm. And, uh, so even as you're just reading the poem, you don't even have to be thinking about, it, but you're getting kind of initiated into uh, the 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 major um, the major Christian realities of of the Triune God and the Person of Christ, and and I mean I think that's that's not typically how we think about poetry being put together, but it's it's just exquisite.
0: That's amazing. It's kind of this sense of everything building into something that pulls you towards, which is really kind of the arc of the the comedy, this this triune life, this triune delight, and the triune love. Uh, Which Mm. brings me to uh, what I think will be a very useful exercise. Uh, When we were talking about how we could kind of immerse people in Dante in a way that would make them want to go pick up their own copy, you suggested kind of pulling a theme and looking at it through through the story. And so today we're going to be looking at the theme of love and seeing how love kind of carries its way um, from, from the darkness of hell to the glories of heaven. And we'll be kind of dipping in at several points along the way and just discussing this together. And I hope that this will what it will affect in people is a desire to go pick up their own copy of Dante and dive in a little canto at a time, um, which honest, I'm just going to pop this in here. What, what translation would you tell people to pick up if they were diving into Dante for the first time?
1: You know, there are so many good translations. I think the real key is to find something that's just readable and approachable. Yeah. So I think Mark Musa's translation, you can get individual Volumes for each part, or you can get something called the Portable Dante. Mm. The translation itself isn't always the most precise, but it's incredibly readable,
2: Mm. and I
1: think it's a good place to start. Uh, Robert and Gene Hollander uh, have a a good readable translation, but their notes are overwhelming. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Anthony Esselin has a nice translation, it's fairly recent. Uh, Joy, you were reading from Robin Kirkpatrick's mm-hmm. translation, uh, which is which is uh, beautifully com- composed. But I I find you want to be familiar with the narrative yes. of the Divine Comedy uh, before that. So I, I think um, that John Chiardi is a good mm-hmm. is a good option too. Yeah. There are it's hard to go too wrong, but yeah. uh, Musa Esselin. K-R-D. K-R-D. yeah.
0: Also a fun fact is that um, I think I've talked about Dorothy Sayers on here before, you know, the kind of mm-hmm. honorary woman inkling uh, mystery writer and the, actually the first way I encountered the comedy was I was such a weirdo and in my undergraduate I picked up a, a copy of The Inferno for just because I wanted to read it and it happened to be Dorothy Sayers uh, translation so that's also a fun fact. I wouldn't necessarily say read her translation but it's just fun to know that she did one.
1: Sears was my first encounter with oh. the Divine Comedy too. I uh, I picked up a a copy of it for fifty cents at a used books sale.
0: There you go, yeah. wonderful. Okay, well, shall we dive into the Inferno, into into Hell? Why don't you give us a little background um, into this particular canto? At this point, right, Dante has found himself um, in the dark wood. Virgil has pulled him along and we have just gotten to the gates of hell so give us give us context on the canto we're going to read and then read us a bit we can discuss it
1: yeah so dante's inferno is a series of circles where each sin, each of, of these uh, significant uh, sins that kill the soul in one way or another are, are set up. And the deeper Dante goes, the more compounded, the more holistic the corruption of, of the, the soul. We're gonna look at uh, Inferno Canto Five, which is one of the most celebrated cantos in the entire Divine Comedy. This is the circle of hell, uh, in which the lustful are punished. The way that Dante structures uh, his his punishments, he adopts something called the contrapasso, which is essentially what what I call a a, a fitting a fitting punishment, a punishment that fits the crime in a way. Um, but it fits the crime because it reveals the true nature of mm. of the vice. And so, part of the pilgrim's journey through hell, I think is about seeing sin stripped away of all of the kind of delusions, all mm. of the ways that we deceive ourselves into thinking that these are actually good things. Mm. He's seeing sin for what it really is, revealed okay. through the punishment. So here we're among the lustful, and the uh, the lustful's punishment is they're blown about in a tempest, mm. in this this harsh wind. Um, and I think it's the idea of, of our desires uh, aren't stable, right? They, in lust, they're, they're blown about, however. You know? And it's here in Inferno Canto 5 that Dante meets a couple named uh, Paolo and Francesca. And uh, they're floating around in this, this storm together. And uh, uh, Paolo doesn't speak, he's just crying in the background the whole time. Uh, but Francesca speaks. And Dante knew Francesca. Mm. So this is, uh, this is somebody that, that yeah. We'll get, we're, we're getting into Dante's boldness here as, <laughs> as a poet. Dante knows that she has a, a bit of a scandalous story where she gets caught um, in an amorous embrace with her, um, with her brother-in-law,
2: mm.
1: Paolo. And so that's the scene that we're going to look at here. We're going to look at uh, Francesca's, Francesca's speech about herself. And it's where she discourses on, on love. And so this starts in uh, Inferno, Canto 5, line 88. Francesca and Paolo just floated down to, to Dante. And Francesca begins... O oh, living creature, gracious and kind, that come through somber air to visit us, who stained the world with blood. If the king of the universe were our friend, we would pray that he might give you peace, since you show pity for our grievous plight. We long to hear and to speak of that which you desire to speak and know, here while the wind has calmed. On that shore where the river Po, with all its tributary slows to peaceful flow, there I was born. Love, quick to kindle in the gentle heart, seized this man with the fair form taken from me. The way of it afflicts me still. Love, which absolves no one beloved from loving, seized me so strongly with his charm that as you see, he has not left me yet. Love. Brought us to one death. So that's Francesca's kind of opening line, and it's interesting that she invokes love here mm. three times. She invokes love three times, and of course we know um, three is a significant number for for Dante. Uh, but of course, it, Francesca is is so eloquent and so charismatic Mm -hmm. and so sympathetic i mean she's one might be tempted to say manipulative Mm. here right if the king of the universe were our friend well but you're in hell so clearly not
0: well and it's kind of one Uh, of those things where you want to be like well surely you had some choice in making him not be your friend
1: (laughs) And that's precisely the whole thing with with Francesca, right? She says, love absolves no one beloved from loving,
2: hmm.
1: right? Which is very much a kind of invocation of the kind of love poetry that Dante wrote as a young man. When the God of love strikes you, he overwhelms your sense of duty, your sense of fidelity, hmm. right? What we want is a love that catches us off guard Mm. that enraptures us where we become um we become just these these kind of servants to Mm. the god of love Mm. and so francesca is in a sense she's invoking this this word love in a way where where she's uh she's saying love is god
2: Mm. and
1: of course the journey of of the comedy is to get us to the point where Dante says, no, love isn't God. God is love. Mm. But we're starting off here in the beginning where, where Francesca is, is making love into a God and she is just, you know, the poor helpless victim. Well,
0: uh, yeah. And that's, and that's where you see that tie back into this spring of hell being, then being blown about. Um, when I was reading through it, I, I love in the opening where it says, um, here condemned, here were the souls condemned for carnal sins, who made reason bow to their instinctual bent, as starlings on the wing, on the wing and winter chills are borne along in wide and teeming flocks. So on these breathing gusts, the evil souls and um, starlings, I, I hadn't experienced starlings in the States, but we have them here. And in the winter, you will see literally like hundreds, sometimes thousands of them in these kind of waves in this in the sky kind of being blown about in these mysterious ways. And so it's giving this picture of these souls as people who either can't or have given up their ability to choose. They're kind of just (laughs) tossed about. And that's very much how she narrates herself. Like, she's narrating herself as, it's not my fault. I I didn't have a choice in the matter. This just happened to me. Um, And, yeah, and that's such a... And she is very... She's compelling to, even as the reader or as Dante's experiencing it, you, you feel like you should feel bad for her. Mm, uh, yes, but, but then you begin to kind of wonder, is that, should I really feel bad for her? Is there something missing? Did she really lose her choice? Mm, yeah. Yes.
1: And that's the wonderful thing. Dante trusts his readers mm. too much. Sometimes perhaps uh, he doesn't moralize. Mm. He just presents these people, uh, Francesca here, uh, brunetta latini in canto 15 of of inferno ulysses in canto 26 he presents these vivid and sympathetic and even inspiring characters and then he doesn't point out what's wrong he, he yeah he he lets us do that hard and messy work this is why i'm saying he's he's provocative um to, to go along with what you're saying, Joy, the context of Inferno 5 is confession. Mm-hmm. Before we get to Francesca, we have this very weird and silly scene where all of the souls of the damned have to stand in front of the king of hell or the judge of hell, King Minos, who looks at them and they confess their sins and he assigns them to their appropriate mm-hmm. sphere. So the setting of this canto is in the context of confession,
2: mm. and that's
1: precisely what Francesca refuses to do here, mm. right? She's not going to take ownership. I'm a victim of love. Mm. That's that's what she's saying. But there's this fascinating undercurrent. Her first uh, her first line about love is love quick to kindle in the gentle heart.
2: Mm.
1: And I had to I read this poem so many times before that line stood out to me. That's almost a direct quote from Dante's early work,
2: hmm. from
1: Dante's early love poetry.
2: Hmm.
1: And, and it is a direct quote from one of Dante's friends, fellow poets, a guy named um, Guido Guinezelli, hmm. who was also a love poet. And we meet him in Purgatorio, okay. where the lustful are being purged. And so Dante here, I think, is subtly, he's subtly confessing hmm. the failures of his own love poetry.
2: Hmm.
1: He's like, oh, no, I contributed hmm. to this way of thinking about, about love. So in Francesca's failure to confess, Dante, the poet, I think, is, is kind of subtly confessing. Hmm. That's really interesting by putting his own verse in, in her, her mouth. mouth. Mm. Yeah.
0: That's so interesting and I think um that something that stands out to me in her little speech as well. Uh your translation put it differently, but mine says when she's kind of narrated, you know, it, I couldn't do anything and you know, woke in love it woke love within me. My translation says love drew us on toward consuming death. Mm. So there's this kind of uh image of devouring or consuming and i think when i connected it with that passage i just read where it talks about this is the this is the place for carnal sin where me- reason made rout there and sexual bent there's this there's this kind of picture of this love as an appetite which consumes the beloved mm-hmm. and that's something that comes up and i think we'll see this in the other cantos too is this relationship between kind of beholding and loving and mm-hmm love that devours, which isn't really love mm. or love that brings life or brings to life. Um, mm. And that ultimately this love of, of hers, it it wasn't a love that beheld and brought color and liveliness and fruitfulness into the beloved, but a love that consumes and brings death. And that that's kind of this, this leaning into a love that is purely carnal or appetitive like it's it's about an appetite something that i need to consume and satisfy um and so that was something that stood out to me it was kind of the the relationship between a consuming love rather than the lover love that beholds and gives life to which we'll see more in, in the coming cantos
1: yeah yeah there's there's a wonderful scene at the end of this canto where francesca says here's here's how we fell into into our carnal uh, relationship, or how we were kidnapped and and enthralled into our carnality. Uh, she and her brother-in-law Paolo are reading a book together mm-hmm. in a garden, and it's you know the kind of scintillating tale of Guinevere and and Lancelot's mm-hmm. affair. And and Francesca says, you know, we we made eye contact. We were reading these this love story this adulterous love story uh together and we just started you know our eyes connected and we looked away bashfully and maybe one of us bit our lip and and you know and and uh then the book was our galahad that brought us together and then that day we read no further right which is a, a nice suggestive way to to end uh but what's so fascinating is is uh, Francesca is saying, "A book led us into, mm. into She's our damnation.
0: Putting the blame on anything other than her choice,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And so the book, the story, shaped her desire.
2: Mm.
1: Right? She read the story of a of a adulterous relationship, and so then she performed what she read mm. to her damnation. Well." Isn't it interesting that now Dante is writing a book hmm. that that has the aim of shaping the desires mm-hmm. of his of his readers? And so maybe there's a there's a bit of a meta comment going on here mm. in in this. One scholar calls this um the triangulation of, mm. of the book. And and so it, it seems like maybe part of what Dante's doing is Dante's trying to to highlight the power of reading mm. for our moral and indeed even our spiritual transformation, the mm. formation of our desire.
0: Oh, well, I'm all about that, as, as you know. Yes. Um, yes. No, I think that's, that's very interesting. And it's kind of like this book for them as they read, it makes possible, um, you know, a, a future of a vice. But in this, Dante's trying to give an imagination that makes possible a movement towards goodness. Yes. Okay, so shall we move on to? Uh, we will continue to follow this theme of love into Purgatory. Uh, so give us give us a bit of a background on Purgatory, and then um, I'll read this section.
1: Yeah. So Purgatory is a mountain on the uh, southern hemisphere. It's the only landmass on the southern hemisphere in Dante's imagination, and it is a mountain that's divided into seven terraces. Uh, each terrace is a different one of the seven deadly sins mm. and the idea is that as you ascend the mountain you are being purged of those vices mm. until you reach the top of the mountain which is the garden of eden
2: mm.
1: so the journey up the mountain of purgatory is is the graced walk through healing through mm. purgation back to a state of innocence a state of child of childlike play, and so the first three sins—pride, uh, envy, and wrath—are um, what Dante calls misdirected love. It's loving yourself over and against your neighbor. the uh, The next terrace is the vice of sloth, which is a deficient love. It's not loving what we should or how we should, and then the last three greed, gluttony, and lust are excessive loves, loving a good thing mm. too much or in the wrong way. And so the scene that we're talking about here is in in Canto 19, just as Dante is about to move into those excessive, mm. excessive loves and have those vices purged from him. And so he spends three nights climbing up Mount, uh, Mount Purgatory. And this is kind of the middle of his journey and he falls asleep and he has this dream
0: there came dreaming to me a stammering crone cross-eyed and crooked on her crippled feet her hands mere stumps and drained and pale and look i gazed at her then as to frozen limbs when night has weighed them down the sun gives strength likewise my staring made her free long tongue to speak and drew her in the briefest space, erect in every limb, giving the hue that love desires to her blurred, pallid face. And once her powers of speech were thus untied, she then began to sing. So I could not, except with pain, have drawn my eyes away. I am, she sang, I am the lovely siren, so full of pleasure to the ear, my tune, that mariners eye magic in mid-ocean. And Ulysses, entrance to hear my chant, Um, I turned off course. Rarely do those who've learned my ways depart. I bring them full content. And then, before that mouth closed up once more, a lady, holy and alert, appeared, and at my side she crushed the other's power. Virgil, O Virgil, in harshest tones. Who's that? she said. And he approached, eyes set, unwavering on her true nobility. He seized the siren, ripping down her dress, opened the front of her, displayed her guts, and that, with all its stench, now woke me up. Oh my!
1: <laughs> yeah, we like to think of Dante as maybe a little bit more highbrow than he actually is. Uh, he is a he's a comic poet, and uh, so he is very uh, earthly, shall we say? He's going. Uh, I feel
0: like he's. I feel like he's going for shock and awe with this one.
1: I think he is. I think he is. I, I have to admit, this is one of my favorite passages in the entirety of the Divine Comedy, um, not because it's it's so gross, but because I think it's so representative of mm. how Dante thinks about this word love. Um, you know, we have the scene of of the siren, mm. and what's so important is that the siren comes into the dream and she's she's clearly monstrous mm. right she's she's ugly she's not desirable she's she's stammering cross-eyed crooked her hands are stumps. stumps she's i mean it the this is i i mean i can't even imagine what the film version of this would oh. would look like <laughs> and then dante says i gazed at her mm. And it's through his vision, which hasn't been healed yet.
2: Mm.
1: His vision transforms her obvious heinousness into something desirable, right? Mm. His vision is what straightens out her limbs and makes her stand up straight and gives her the hue that love desires and actually sets her free to talk, right? She couldn't talk before. (laughs) And so I think Dante's drawing... Um, our attention as readers on, onto the way that the power of our imagination mm. and how when our imagination is unhealed, untransformed by grace and by true beauty, we can make, well, we make sin look attractive mm. like Francesca did. We can make ugliness look beautiful. We can make what is undesirable, desirable. Mm. And that's kind of what Purgatorio dramatizes, is mm. the healing of that in, in Dante, and then I, I think, by extension, in, in us. The other thing that I think is, is really telling is that when the siren begins to sing, mm. Dante's, again, enthralled, right? He mm. could not accept with pain, which I think is a key line. Mm. have drawn his eyes away, and then she, she says, "I am, I am the lov- lovely siren." Hmm. So she inv- invokes the divine name there twice. Mm. Oh I my am. Gosh.
0: Wow. I so am. So she's making love God again.
1: Yes, and and identifying it with with herself, and and she says, "I will make everybody content." You know, mm. I will I will please you. And isn't this exactly what every sin says? Mm. Right. I yeah. I have bought, I've bought into this lie. I don't know how many times in my life. It's like, I, I promise you so much. Oh, you will just be so happy mm. if you just give in to this vice or that vice. Right. Why, why not just be a glutton? You're in quarantine. Just be a glutton. Right.
0: <laughs> it will bring uh-huh. you full content.
1: It will bring you full content, but of course it doesn't. Right. Mm. Um, and then the, the, next scene is what exposes the lie? Mm. What, what exposes the siren for what, what she truly is. It's only when true beauty shows up in the dream, this other lady, holy and alert. There's speculation about who this other lady is. seems pretty clear to me that it's, it's
2: Beatrice.
1: Mm. Um, And, and, it's it's Beatrice showing up that exposes the lie of the siren. It's when true beauty and true holiness and true fulfillment, true love shows up that it that it exposes it exposes the the false claims mm. of of love and and of beauty. And I think that's one of Dante's major contributions. Um, you know and at least in the Christianity that I grew up in, there was very much this language of fleeing from sin,
2: Hmm.
1: right? It was always a movement from, but we were a little bit less clear on what we were moving towards. Hmm. There was never a proper desire.
2: Hmm.
1: There was never a holy desire that was was talked about or that was emphasized. And I think what, what Dante gives to To us as as readers is a very robust theology of of holy desire Mm. and how when you set your eyes on what is true and good and beautiful that is what exposes the lie right so there's a kind of aesthetic consequence of beauty right when you encounter true beauty true goodness true uh true love it it reveals all of the falseness that you've been pursuing and it turns you away from that so Mm. i think there's a beautiful emphasis on on beauty's role in in conversion
2: Mm.
0: in
1: turning away in in metanoia if that makes any sense
0: it does and i again it has that i think as you said turning away i was struck again by the image that he gives us of seeing or of staring and then having our eyes turned towards something else. And, um, I've always kind of been struck by the idea of beauty orienting us around itself. Um, like Mm. I, a really easy example of that is I remember two times once being in California and walking on a beach and seeing as a sunset, everyone stopped and oriented themselves around the sunset or once I was walking through Uh, Oxford and this is really busy street and I was I all of a sudden noticed that everyone had their they were all standing in the middle of the street and looking the same way and even like getting off bikes and stuff and I was like what are they doing and then I looked and I realized it was because there was this beautiful sunset and there's Mm this sense that when we encounter something truly beautiful it kind of pulls us around it and I think that's kind of what's happening here is he has set his eyes on something that's not lovely truly um but, and then he, he uses that kind of twisted desire in himself to make it lovely, but it's mm. only when he encounters the truly beautiful that he's able to, to draw his eyes away from that and towards something that can reorient his desire. And I mean, it's very, um, it reminds me of, uh, it's trite but it's true that the passage in, you know, Lewis, where he says, our Lord has not found our desires too, uh, too strong, but too weak that we even as the siren kind of promises his full content, it's like drinking salt water. It just kind of leaves him continually more and more thirsty. And the solution to that desire, the solution of purgatory, is, is not to say we must get rid of the thirst, but to say, no, we must train ourselves away from drinking from fountains that will only make us more thirsty and orienting us towards um, the true and living water. And yeah. Beautiful.
1: Yeah, I think that's beautifully, beautifully put. A scholar that uh, I I read recently said that the dream of the siren is really uh, essential because it cultivates, and I think this is a really nice phrase, the desirability of desire, hmm. the desirability of desire, that what purgatory represents is resisting resisting um having a desire that's satisfied
2: Mm. Um, Mm.
1: having a desire that's too small Mm. having a desire that uh is content with the siren Mm. and and does not constantly desire the infinite beauty of god Mm. and and so uh, yeah, you you brought up C.S. Lewis, and and I think of that wonderful line where he says, uh, where we are like children who are content going on making mud pies in a slum because we can't fathom what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Mm, yeah. Right. We need we need to desire desire again and. And I think Dante does that beautifully. And of course, Lewis was a great reader of of Dante.
0: Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, as you were talking about uh, the mountain, of course, he's climbing up in purgatory. I was reminded of in The Great Divorce, when we get into what we think is heaven, right? In The Great Divorce, which is you get the the bus and it takes them away from the old town. um, That's described as this journey up a mountain in which he goes from being this kind of frail, calls a, himself a stain on the atmosphere to becoming a real person with real feet that can actually walk up this mountain. Um, and that the thing that pulls you on is desire. It's learning to actually desire something beyond yourself. I thought, well, of course he, he took that from Dante. I I have no yes. doubt. And um, yes. and of course, George MacDonald is his Virgil uh, through that, right. through that purgatory, right. which is just one Stephen. of those many, many pictures in which you can see Dante being pulled into so much literature and, Forming the imaginations of the the people we love reading.
1: Yeah, and that's one of my favorite things about teaching Dante is I tell students like once you know Dante, you will see him everywhere,
0: mm-hmm.
1: absolutely everywhere. He's he's part of our mental furniture, and uh, and they're always so excited. They're like, oh my gosh, I I was watching this TV show on the CW, and they invoked Dante's Inferno, and I was like. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were wrong, but that's great. That's great. It's wonderful. And they're just so excited um, because yes. he's such a pillar in, yeah. in our kind of cultural imagination.
0: Yeah. And I, I will say my last thing on this canto is it's one thing to say, you know, we should continue to desire. We shouldn't give up on the the desire to desire, but it's another thing to give us this image of the small desire of a a, a stumped, stooped, can't speak siren, stood beside with the beautiful lady. Um, That gives us not just kind of an intellectual way to understand it, but this image that makes it seem true. And I think that's the gift that he gives us. Uh, This Mm. is a a clear example of him doing theology through poetry in a way that couldn't be as effectively done in in mere, um, you know, just laying out ideas. I think that's something I always want people to think about is that Dante here, he's not just doing theology in a more complicated way. Do you know what I mean? He's not just taking what would be a very simple theological idea and then just making it, uh, making that point more circuitously. He's making it in a way that can really only under be understood through this form of poetry and imagery. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, shall we, we will move to our um, to our next bit, um, again on love. We're getting closer, closer to heaven, although we, we won't get into it too much. We'll close with a canto from that. Uh, but our next passage is, we're doing it on, uh, Beatrice, isn't it? Yes. So give us the context and, and I'll let you do that reading.
1: Great. So this is in Purgatorio 30, uh, a little bit of background, Dante is found at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, Lost in a Dark Wood, and the Virgin Mary up in heaven sees him in his plight, and she sends Dante's patron saint, Saint Lucy, uh, to to help Dante, and Lucy goes to Beatrice, who is also in heaven. Beatrice died uh, when she was very young, in her mid-20s, and Beatrice goes to to Virgil, who is uh, in limbo in hell. And so there's a nice kind of uh, management model that Dante uh, (laughs) creates there. And so Virgil has been Dante's guide through all of Inferno and up until Purgatorio 30. Virgil is going to hand Dante over to Beatrice, and Beatrice is going to take Dante now that he has been purged of his vices, now that he has been um, uh, made ready for heaven, restored to innocence, he, uh, she's going to guide him into to the rest of the journey into into paradise. So we get to that towards the end of Purgatorio in Canto thirty, and we've been looking forward to this moment because Virgil keeps saying to Dante, like, "Hey." Beatrice is at the top of the mountain. I know you're tired, man. I'm tired too, but like, let's keep going. I know you're scared, let's keep going because Beatrice is waiting. And so the lore of Beatrice, the desi- Dante's desire for Beatrice is what's pulling him up the mountain.
2: Hmm.
1: And then they have this reunion. And I always tell my students, I was like, think before you read this canto, think about what, what you expect for this reunion. And they're always like, oh, well, given how Dante's been talking about Beatrice, we expect this to be, you know, a nice kind of tame, but gentle, compassionate, caring reunion. And it's not. (laughs) It's not. Dante has gone through this journey, and then he encounters Beatrice in the Garden of Eden. They're separated across across a, a river, the river of Lethe, and Dante sees her, and she's dressed in, in red, green, and white, and he, Dante says, and in my spirit, which for so long a time had not been overcome with awe that used to make me tremble in her presence, even though I could not see her with my eyes, Through the hidden force that came from her, I felt the overwhelming power of that ancient love. And here Dante's using language from his Vita Nuova, his early youthful encounters with Beatrice. But as we'll see, he's going to develop those a little bit. And as soon as her majestic force, which had already pierced me once before I had outgrown my childhood, struck my eyes, I turned to my left with the confidence a child has running to his mama when he is afraid or in distress, to say to Virgil, not a single drop of blood remains in me that does not tremble. I know the signs of the ancient flame. Hmm. But Virgil had departed, leaving us bereft. Virgil, sweetest of fathers, Virgil to whom I gave myself for my salvation, and not all our ancient mother had lost could save my cheeks washed in the dew from being stained again with tears. And what's interesting about that passage when Dante describes Beatrice as that ancient flame, he's quoting Virgil, here Virgil's Aeneid. This is um, this is uh, the the famous scene where Virgil's tragic queen Dido. Encounters Aeneas and she's overcome by love and desire for for him and she uh, She recognizes the ancient flame that of love that will actually destroy her right her love for Aeneas leads to her undoing and her destruction And so Dante knows that his love and his desire for Beatrice might undo him it might destroy him And so he turns back to Virgil for comfort but of course no this is what love has to do. It has to unmake us. Mm. A true holy love isn't going to console us and satisfy us like the siren promises. It's going to transform us. Mm. But Virgil's gone. He disappears. And uh, one, of, one of my colleagues, uh, Vittorio Montemaggi, uh, one of my favorite Dante scholars, he says, Virgil disappears for Dante's benefit mm. so that Dante can grow. And so Beatrice speaks for the first time, and she says, Dante, because Virgil has departed, do not weep. Do not weep yet. There is another sword to make you weep, which is not what you expect No, with this grand romantic reunion. You don't expect her to say, like, I, you want to weep? I'll make you weep.
0: Yeah, it's right? a bit of a, uh, do you want to cry? I, I'm about to give you something real to cry about just not comforting.
1: Uh, and and she just, she criticizes him and, and she has scorn, a regal scorn in on her face, as Dante puts it. And then she speaks again. She says, look over here. I am, I truly am Beatrice.
2: Hmm. And
1: so notice there's the I am hmm. language again, repeated, just like the siren. It's replaying the dream of the siren, but now it's it's a true claim to to Beatrice as an icon of, of divine love. And so she she criticizes she criticizes Dante and and her critique is, is that this man in his new life, in his Vita Nuova had so much potential that each good disposition in him would have come to marvelous fruition. Mm. But the richer and more vigorous the soil when planted ill and left to go to seed, the wilder and more noxious it becomes.
2: Mm.
1: For a time I let my my countenance sustain him, guiding him with my youthful eyes. I drew him with me in the right direction.
2: Mm.
1: So again, her beauty is is what's drawing Dante, not to herself, but through herself to the beauty of, of God. And once I had reached the threshold of my second age, when I changed lives, when she died, he took himself from me and gave himself to others. And when I had risen to spirit from my flesh, his beauty and virtue in me became more rich to him, I was less dear and less pleasing. He set his steps upon an untrue way, pursuing those false images of good that bring no promise to fulfillment. Useless the inspiration I sought and won for him, as both with dreams and with other means I called him back. So little did he heed them. He sank so low that every instrument for his salvation now fell short, except to make him see souls in hell. And so I visited the threshold of the dead and weeping offered up my prayers to the one who conducted him here this far, this far broken would be the highest decree of god should the river be crossed and its sustenance be, be tasted without payment of some fee his penitence that shows itself in tears hmm. and i think dante's pictures is, this is what true beauty and true love do they call you to transformation
0: hmm. i I just, this is such a compelling and beautiful scene and something that struck me as you were reading it is like you were saying, these resonances with these other cantos that we've read, right? Like when he sees her and he describes being pulled on by the ancient love, he's kind of referencing right back to that Francesca scene in which she describes being overpowered, overwhelmed. But now it's, it's an overwhelming love that doesn't draw him into a consuming love, but a love that kind of transforms him, that calls him forward. And then again, with that I am and that I am that you think of the siren. And so it's like this this transformation of we've seen these other loves that were either in, in damnable forms or in, in forms that weren't yet purged. And it, we see it suddenly in this light that can actually be the, become the thing that draws him on. And there's a sense in which this desire for Beatrice becomes that sanctified desire that pulls him towards towards God and that I think is a beautiful picture of what you were saying earlier that it's not just to turn away from desire but to ask that these desires be transformed so that we're pulled towards God through them and and that's what we see in Dante is this kind of long arc of his of his love and his desire for Beatrice becoming transformed and purified into something that actually pulls him into the courts of heaven
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think one of Dante's boldest moves is that he identifies Beatrice and Christ. Mm.
2: Um,
1: you know, Christ's number is 33. Mm. Beatrice's number is nine. Mm. Right? Dante's, Dante always associates her with a number nine because uh, he first saw her when he was nine years old, the ninth mm. hour of the ninth day of the ninth mm. month. Uh and so of course nine is the multiple of of three. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: three times three. And and so I think Beatrice for Dante, Beatrice is how Christ comes to Dante.
2: Right.
1: And this seems really bold at first. I know my students are always like, Oh, can can we say that? that?
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Are, are we allowed to say that? And I said, you know, Dante maybe being very bold. Maybe he's setting Beatrice up as an idol, or maybe Dante's just taking very seriously what the word Christian means, mm. right? Just means little Christ. Yeah. And so I, I say, you know, Dante's picture of, of Beatrice is also an invitation to us to ask ourselves, who do we need to become in order to be that Beatrician figure mm. for others, yeah. How do we become this little Christ? It's
0: it's the to, words to it's the words of Saint Paul when he talks about being transformed into Christ's image, and she mm-hmm. has truly become that. She is has been so transformed by the true love that she becomes that image that um, that he can strain towards, and that's just that's a beautiful thing, um, and I love I love also knowing that about nine. I didn't realize that with Beatrice. I'd never heard that.
1: Yeah, uh, she is in exactly 33 cantos in the Divine Comedy. So she comes in in Purgatorio 30 and she leaves in Paradiso 30.
2: Hmm. Uh, So 33 cantos. Uh, She is uh, named... 63 times in the Divine Comedy because six plus three equals nine. Huh. Uh,
1: it's it's maddening once you start getting into all of the things that <laughs> start Dante's feeling doing like with, a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, it is it is uh it is wild. But I, I think what Dante's doing here is both very bold and very Orthodox. Or, <laughs> very orthodox, almost prosaic. Hmm right? Shouldn't we all see, isn't this how we should see each other? Hmm. Um, because even, you know, as, as you and I are Skyping Mm -hmm. here, Joy, as we're recording this, I mean, hopefully part of the dynamic is, is you, Christ is coming to me through, through you and, and vice versa. And isn't that the beauty of, of this faith
2: Hmm.
1: that, that we have? And, um, yeah, so I think Dante takes takes this very basic Christian idea and dramatizes it in a way that's so dramatic and shocking and and almost a little like off putting mm-hmm. so that then we have to enter into it and recognize, oh no, you know what, this is he's exactly right.
0: This is what has been one of the most basic true things of the faith all along. It yeah, makes me think it, of the Christ and you, the hope of glory, and that in every yes. and every Christian we encounter, that there is that encounter with Christ. And if we take seriously that picture of the image of God in us being transformed to Christ, we should, we should expect to encounter Christ in each other, and find ourselves drawn towards God in that.
1: Yes, yes, and and I think of uh, the Hopkins poem. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, you know, in the features of men's faces. And and so I think Dante is making the familiar strange
2: hmm.
1: here and taking this word that we use so often, this word love, hmm. and he's interrogating it. And he's asking, what do we really mean with this word love? How can we use this word love to justify horrible things.
2: Hmm.
1: How can we use this word love to indicate how it needs to be transformed and healed? How are we use how can we use this word love where it becomes a name for God?
0: Hmm. And he he watches the arc of this love transformed. Well, and we have only dipped into 3 of how many cantos was it?
1: Oh, there's a solid 100.
0: All right. So uh, as we draw to the end of this podcast, I hope that people will be inspired to go pick up Dante. And before we close, I wanted to ask, are there any resources that you would point people towards um, if they want to make their own journey into Dante?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of really wonderful introductions to, to the Divine Comedy. Um, there's a recent one by Jason Baxter that came out. That's very readable, breaks the the comedy down in, in really uh, digestible uh, chunks, really recommended. Uh, my favorite kind of intro to Dante is a book by Peter Hawkins, mm. and it's called Dante, A Brief History. Mm. There's also a YouTube lecture that Hawkins did that I would recommend, and it's called Dante's Commedia, From Despair to Hope to Glory. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to hear uh, Hawkins deliver this lecture, and I, I don't know that I've ever been so entranced hmm. uh, in, in an academic talk. So I would recommend that, that lecture and his book, Dante, A Brief History. And I think he has one of the most wonderful lines in this book. He says, readers of Dante have nothing to lose in coming to the Commedia, except, perhaps, life as they have known it thus far.
0: Oh, well, what could make you want to read it more than that? Hawkins is the professor from Yale, right?
1: He is, yes. Yes,
0: I remember um, I almost did their master's in literature and religion there. And I remember being almost compelled to go there just because of watching his YouTube um, thing on Dante. And... He, yes, I think it's marvelous. It, I think it was in that too, where he talks about kind of his journey through Dante at the same time as falling in love with his wife, and they're kind of being this Beatrician relationship with them too, so.
1: Yes, it's de- wonderful.
0: Yes, definitely point people in that direction. And um, I think to close, we have to close with that most classic canto, perhaps, of all of Dante, with the famous closing lines. So... Uh, Let me end this with saying thank you so much for giving generously of your time and of your Dante enthusiasm. Um, I know that I have learned from it, and I I hope that many other people will enjoy this as well.
1: Oh, Um, it's my pleasure.
0: So thank you so much for coming on. And why don't you end with kind of the closing canto in, in the Commedia?
1: Wonderful. So this is Paradiso 33, and this is how the Divine Comedy ends, with Dante beholding God in the beatific vision. And he sees all of creation as a book bound by love. He sees the lights of the Trinity. And then he sees uh, this final mystery of divine love that I'll read here. Oh, how scant is speech, too weak to frame my thoughts. Compared to what I still recall, my words are faint. To call them little is to praise them too much. O eternal light, abiding in yourself alone, knowing yourself alone, and known to yourself, and knowing, loving, and smiling on yourself. That circling which thus conceived appeared in you as light's reflection, once my eyes had gazed on it a while, seemed, within itself and in its very color, to be painted with our likeness, so that my sight was all absorbed in it. Like the geometer who fully applies himself to square the circle, and for all his thought, cannot discover the principle he lacks. Such was I at that strange new sight. I tried to see how our image could fit in the circle, and how it found its wear in it. But my wings had not sufficed for that. Had not my mind been struck by a bolt of lightning, that was granted what I asked. Here my exalted vision lost its power, but now my will and my desire, like wheels revolving with an even motion, were turning with the love that moves the sun and all the other stars.